Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. If you know me, you know how obsessed I am with live performance. To me, nothing replaces being in a theater and the lights going down and the orchestra starts to play and that first moment of magic. And I know the way I feel about theater, some people feel about sports or opera or dance or comedy or food. And what if there was a place that you could go and find out which live events are going on near you that night, and then for a discount price, you can get off your couch, put down that clicker, and experience the magic that is live performance. Well, there is a place, goldstar.com. You just go to that website, you type in your city, and every amazing live event will be listed at discount prices. Theater, dance, comedy, film, food, concerts, sports, no more staying home. You are going to go out and build memories and experiences that expand your mind and heart through live performance with goldstar.com. Goldstar is in 26 cities around the country with over 8 million members already signed up to find out what event is going on near you. So go to goldstar.com. Get out of your house and build memories that are magic for you and your family. Expand your mind, expand your hearts. Go see live performance by using goldstar.com. Tell them Alana sent you. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's Alana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind the scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today. I recently had the honor of hosting a live podcast event at the Nantucket Film Festival, and I was able to interview their Screenwriting Tribute Award winner, the great Leslie Dixon. She is one of the highest paid female screenwriters of all time. She is funny, irreverent, and inspiring. If you love a movie, she's probably written it, and I'm so pleased that I was able to have this conversation uh, with some incredible questions from a a really starry audience, Um, and it was fun, and I learned a lot, and you will too. She is someone that you want to listen to with pen and paper so you can write down some of the ways in which she was able to carve a career for herself in a town where she knew no one uh, with no 
contacts in the business and just a young woman in Hollywood making her way. And not only has she made her way, she has done it and been a total trailblazer. So welcome, Leslie Dixon, to the podcast. A-OK. My guest today is the award-winning screenwriter and producer, Leslie Dixon. Leslie has written dozens of screenplays, including Limitless, Freaky Friday, Hairspray, The Thomas Crown Affair, Mrs. Doubtfire, and Overboard. She was raised in San Francisco. She's the granddaughter of the Southwestern painter, Maynard Dixon, and the photographer, Dorothea Lang. Yeah. I was lucky enough to be in the audience last night when she won the Screenwriters Tribute Award at the Nantucket Film Festival, and I am even more thrilled to be here this morning with Leslie Dixon. So welcome to the podcast. I keep telling people no one cares about the writer, but they don't believe me on Nantucket. But that's what's so extraordinary about this festival. It really is um, a place where where writers are appreciated, honored, and given the respect that they don't always get in, in Hollywood in the that way they that they should. they never get. Or never get. Um, one of the things that really struck me, I'm sure most of you were at the event last night. You were, Mr. Matthews introduced the event last night, which was a thrill for all of us. Um, I, one of the takeaways for me, aside from your extraordinary career, and literally if I had read all the movies she either wrote or produced, we would be here for an hour just going through those titles, was this idea of don't let anyone make you stay in your lane. That if you have an interest, great. And then if you have a new interest, great. And pursue it. And at least for me, you said many things that were inspiring. But I really thought that that was an important takeaway, um, that life can have many chapters. Before we get to today, I want to just go back a little bit and deep dive into where your love of writing began. And was it young? Was it in your 20s? When did you sort of fall in love with pen to paper? I was one of those little girls that the English teacher always liked. <laughs> Sucked at math, great at English, right? You know, when you grow up in a house full of books and records and your parents are readers, and because you have a mother and a father, the father's all Civil War history books, but the mother has novels like Gone with the Wind, and I mean, things that you can read when you're 10 years old and understand. Probably I should not have read 1984 at 10, <laughs> but it was there in the bookshelf. Uh, so, you know, all writers are readers. Uh, I love to read, and I was an only child, so I had to read a lot or I wouldn't have had any company. Um, you develop an interior life. I also like to write nasty rhymes during those years. I hope you have some. I might be able to think of some by the end. <laughs> okay. I kind of hit an apex with that at about 17. My dad was good at it, and I, I wanted to please him, so I would write stuff for his birthday. And then it started to become parodies of standards that were vile and R-rated. That's why you're great at writing for musicals as well. Oh, I hope to do more of that. That was a yeah. real privilege. Yeah. Um, well, when I, when I mentioned who you're, I mean, the legacy of your family, and now you're part of that legacy, and your work will become remembered long after you are here as well, which is kind of a heady thing, but don't it's just care. true. I'll be dead. Um, I'll be dead. Were you? Like, I don't worry about that, ever, ever, ever. I just want to be treated nicely in the present. That would be so great. And here on this island, for sure, I am. Yeah, for sure. Were you aware of your grandparents' impact on art and culture growing up? 
Yes, because she was becoming extremely famous towards the end of her life. And uh, I was aware that a sort of a hush developed around her when she would walk into a room. And she had this sorcerer's trick of speaking very slowly and deliberately and softly. But the content of what was coming out of her mouth was hypnotically fascinating, like a snake, just shh. And pretty soon everybody around her would get really quiet, even if they didn't know who she was, and start leaning forward and trying to hear every syllable and going, oh, wow, yes, hmm. And, and uh, she just had a hypnotic power. And I think that's probably how she was able to get so close to photographic subjects that didn't know her from Adam and were miserable and in the middle of the depression and trying right. to feed their kids. And yet here are these candid photos that are so intimate. And I think it was because she was able to slowly edge her way forward in this quiet way. But there was an aura of power and, and greatness almost visibly shimmering around her. Uh, and I was, I felt it too. Right. Luckily she was nice to me. It would have been terrifying if she wasn't. Well, either way, it would have been very quiet. She would have quietly not been nice to you. So it wouldn't have been as, as scary She's as She's caused a great deal of suffering uh, in that regard. Did uh, she? But not to my generation. Okay. She was the kind of person that was wonderful to have as a grandmother, but maybe not so great as a mom. Y you know, there's, there's artists like that. Yeah. I hope my kids aren't on a panel someday. <laughs> my kids in the audience, something really bad could happen. Okay. Young Tom is here. Oh, yeah. Okay. Raise your hand, Hi. Hi. You've become a bit of a star of this festival as well this weekend. Do you feel it? There's kind of an aura around you. Young Tom. <laughs> the future... Thing. <laughs> you see, there was a method to his madness. All right. So, you say that you're like the English teacher's pet, as it were. I'm calling you that. You didn't use those words. The math teacher's despair, though. Right. So, you grew up in San Francisco. You have been um, very honest about the fact that you were in the world of music for a while. You played some guitar yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about that chapter before the screenwriting chapter began? At the time, I thought I was wasting two years of my life, but it's turned out to be so great that I lived with a guitar player for two years, and he wasn't a rocker. He was one of these guys, and my husband knows him very well, and so does my kid. He can play absolutely anything, huh. anything you want to sing in any key if he's ever heard it. And he's heard things from 1918, 1933. Your grandmother wants to sing All of Me, he knows it. You know, you want to sing a Beatles song, he knows it. You know, or something that he's just heard five minutes ago. You wrote a song, he can figure out how to play it with you. He makes anyone that plays with him sound better. He can finger pick like Chet Atkins, get swing going like Django. I mean, it was amazing. And so people wondered why at 21, why do you have an 18-year-old boyfriend? What is the matter with you? And then they would hear him play go, oh, that's why. Oh, okay, can he come over to my house for days? And, and were stay you there? writing songs together? Comic ones, yes. Okay. Yes, we were, but we were doing parodies uh, sometimes. We would, I was in a Western swing band. We played 30 swing and Western swing and bluegrass and country. And when you live with a great player, you become their backup player. Mm. And I didn't know at the time that it was unfeminine to have a super aggressive swing attack on a guitar. So I kind of play like a guy. Um, 
the same unfeminine aggressive attack I have pretty much on everything. <laughs> you know, they call it chopping wood. You got to beat rhythm for the guys. You can't be shy. Otherwise, somebody taking a solo on top of what you're doing doesn't know where they are. But so what a great personality trait to have when you enter Hollywood and sort unfeminine of unfeminine and aggressive. That. Yes, absolutely. Um, but as I told you earlier, with gorgeous hair color, so it's a really nice combination. It's my childhood hair color, but uh, it has been augmented for adulthood. <laughs> we have the technology. Yeah. Um, In so Berkeley, no less. You would think everybody goes gray there, but there's actually good hair people. Who knew? That's where I'm going after here, Berkeley for color. I. Uh, and for lunch. And for lunch. And any place you want to show me in the area. So the story goes, and you can tell me if this is apocryphal or not, that you had an interest in becoming a writer. You go to Hollywood on your own. You leave this gentleman and the band, which is not an easy decision, I'm, I'm sure. I was in San Francisco at a time when it was still its rowdy, earthy old self, and that was so hard to do, to go someplace where I knew no one, where it was super hot all the time, um, where I had just working marginal jobs by day and trying to write my first script by night. So that was a, a hard year, that first but year. literally, like, you don't know anyone. You drive, do you drive up the, down the coast to of get? Of course. You, so I had like, a little bashed VW bug with rust stains all over it from the San Francisco fog. What did you literally do? You get there, where did you go? How did you get a job? My dad was living in a pretty far out part of Pasadena, so at least I had a place to stay for a couple of weeks. But there was no handout. There was no, yeah, you gotta be out in two weeks. It was pretty, pretty rough, you know? So I had two weeks to find a place to live and a job. And I was mostly trying to tempt because I, I could use computers and, um, and that would make it flexible. So if I needed to spend a week like working on whatever I was writing, you know, but it was really hard to pay my rent. I started making friends with people who are other wannabe, unsuccessful, striving actors, writers, directors, whatever they wanted to do. And it was interesting to run with that kind of a crowd because some of you do cross over and get in. Some of you don't. Those people will hate you and never speak to you again. So they're the not way. here today. None They're of them never, are here. I mean, yeah. they started, I sold my first script, they started getting mean. Yeah, it happens, you know. I mean, sometimes people say, like, success really changes you and you're going to drop all your friends, but sometimes your old friends drop you because they can't stand it. They're not happy for you. Other friends treat you exactly the same and are not remotely impressed. I've known people from before I got into the business that still kick my ass like they did before. But you literally wrote a screenplay while working in an office as a temp. I got a library card at AFI. That's okay. what showed me what a real script looked like. And, and I know from listening to Chris last night that he is one of the great movie fans. I mean, just the way his mind was effortlessly quoting all of these things. I thought you were going to do We'll Always Have Paris, but you know, I knew you were going to go somewhere with Casablanca. But um, I just loved film more than anything in the whole world. My mother had wanted to be an actress. She knew every piece of gossip about every movie star from all the movie magazines she used to read. She was also highly literate. What mother, I mean, she took me to the midnight show of Clockwork Orange, you know? She took me to the midnight show of The Exorcist on a weeknight, and she wasn't decadent. She wasn't decadent. I mean, it was just like the 10 o'clock show was sold out, and she was like, we're in this line, we're going to this movie. And um, by the way, there was an earthquake later that night, and my brass bed went It's true, I swear. And I came downstairs and I was there an earthquake last night? My mother goes, why, yes, dear, 4.2 on the Richter scale. I thank God. 
you know, but that really did happen. Linda Blair was not anywhere in your house at that time. There was time. nothing green on my bed. So when you get there, you get a library card? Are you being literal? Like yes. you went to the well, AFI library? There was no internet. You had to like go places and actually talk to people. So you start reading screenplays. Yes, and that's how I read good ones because when I was working for a crappy feature film production company, the ones that came in over the transom were terrible. And those were very encouraging because I thought, oh God, I could write something better than this. Absolutely I could. And somehow these people got an agent, which means I know I could do better than this. But then I would check out Chinatown from the AFI library and go, I don't think I could do that. Maybe I better write comedy. And I didn't dream at the time that I would become friends with Robert Town, who wrote that script. And I did, and he's a friend of mine. That's so crazy. And, and, and we're quite close, and I adore him. And he was very encouraging to me right when I was getting my first movie made, which is when I, I met him. He, he told me it was going to be successful. And, and it isn't anything like the stuff he writes, so I was really surprised that he was so kind and, and encouraging. What was the very first script that you wrote? Oh, this is the one that didn't get made. He was right. encouraging about the one that did. Yes, yes, no, I got that. Uh, but what was the first oh, one that got you that in the, the door? Oh, I talked about that the other day, some of these people might have already heard about it. It was a, a comedy about a guy with a multiple personality, and the joke was the wife liked all of those people and didn't want her original husband back. <laughs> they were a lot more accomplished, charming, a better lay, everything you could want. And his family wanted him cured, so that was a problem. And she was trying to keep him, and it was, it was a workable premise, and obviously it was a piece of bait for Robin Williams uh, at the time, and it got sold, but not made for a lot of reasons. But that was your first thing, and right out the gate. my first sale. Unbelievable, and it gets you an agent. Yeah. And now, are you still working a day job? Uh, no. No, no, because, because that was the beauty, and still really is, if you're a working class person, and you sell one script, you have enough money to live for a year, easy. Right. I mean, those were not the days of big expensive spec sales where you're selling things for a million dollars, but if you got $35,000 at that point, you were set for a while, and you could start your next one. Um, I got a writing job, that was a spec script, obviously, I had to just write it in my room and hope for the best, but the second one became the film Outrageous Fortune with Bette Midler and Shelley Long, and um, that was a writing assignment. I mean, the guy had me come into his company, which was Interscope. You think of Interscope as a record company, but at that time it also had a large, vigorous feature film department. And his hilarious producer, Robert Court, was the impresario of that place. And he said, you know, I think the market needs a female buddy picture, and I'm having writers come in and pitch ideas. And so I came and said, well, what if they're both actresses so they can lie and accent their way in and out of situations and turn into other people? And he liked that idea and had me go develop it. And then he hired me to write it. And then Disney made it. So it was really amazing. And then I'm standing on a set. I had never heard a line of my dialogue come out of a, um, or an actor's mouth until the first day of production of that. And it was Bette freaking Midler. Can you imagine? I was so intimidated, um, even though I, I really enjoyed writing for her. I mean, just my wickedest little self coming out of her mouth was so much fun. Were there people early on who became mentors for you? You talk about Robert Town, who is a master, who became a, a kind mentor of he sorts. He became a friend. He did yeah. not give me writing advice. No. no. Did anyone give you writing advice that to this day? No. I've never had a mentor. And also, I hate to say it, but women can be bad about that, you know? Um, Women can be catty sometimes. You know, somebody with tremendous success and a young person comes along and what if they're gonna be the next you? And they act sometimes like it's a zero-sum game. This is something in the interest of feminism. I think women have to be very careful not to backbite each other. I know few women who have been mentored by other women. Hmm. And it's something that I'm 
personally going to try to change in how I relate to people coming up. Because I don't want that to be what my sex does reflexively. And is that something that you have done yourself? Whenever I can. I actually mentor 10 students at the Chapman Film Program and have stayed in touch with them. And when they come to the Bay Area, they have stayed at my house. I mean, I, yes, and I've read their work. And, and I, you know, I can't just read people's work indiscriminately because there's a legal issue uh, to that. But, you know, I had releases. Because the legal issue being their I know a idea lot of being people taken. who have been in, in frivolous lawsuits because they were kind. Robert Town was in one at one point. He was kind enough to read somebody's script and it had a character in it that was a hairdresser. Well, he was three quarters of the way through the script for shampoo, which had a hairdresser. Right. This person thought that he stole their idea, even though it was something he and Warren Beatty had been working on for years. And $200,000 later, he is exonerated in court. So that was a lesson to me, and my lawyer said, no, no matter how much you like someone, unless you've known them for 30 years, you can't just read some stranger's script. What if you're working on something that has some dim similarity? There was a, a, a woman in Chicago that tried to sue Gillian Flynn, the author of Gone Girl, me, everyone associated with that movie, because she said someone had stolen the idea for the screenplay. Gillian had stolen it from a novel she had written. And the judge said, no, she did not. And that just went away. Right. But and you still had to spend the time well, and the Fox, energy. Fox actually took, took over the reins of that. And it was, it was frivolous. But people really are crazy. They really think that if you have a character that stubs their toe, and there's a character that stubs their toe in their script, they're going to sue you. It gets, there are people like that. Right. I, you know? So it has inhibited my ability to give back as much as I might like, because the best thing I can give, obviously, is to read someone's work. Mm -hmm. And I do have a little group of screenwriter friends, that's, uh, and my husband, of course, we're always the first person to read each other's stuff. That's pretty safe. He's got half of everything I own anyway. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Outrageous Fortune, you're off to the races. Uh, Shelley Long <laughs> and, and Bette Midler, which makes you smile. Oh, no. I mean, you know, Shelley, Shelley was difficult to work with, but she liked me and she was good to me. So, I, I can actually say that I enjoyed it more than not. I ended up working with Bette three times. Um, I was scared of her in the beginning. Uh, who wouldn't be? I mean, who wouldn't be? It's Bette Midler. And at one point, she came up to me, grabbed me by the collar, and said, you know you never talk to me. You know you never come up and say hello. Why, what have I done in her imperious way? And I said, I'm terrified of you. She said, me? Me? And she's about five feet tall. You know, that's why she wears those high heels. And she says, oh, well, then just give me a hug right now. And, and I hugged her, and then I was suddenly able to talk to her. Um, and I got to a point, finally, where I could give her shit, which was wonderful. And, and at one point, she was complaining about some line of dialogue. This is way later, when I had relaxed somewhat. And I don't like this because, oh, she's complaining. And I go, well, I don't like wind beneath my wings, but you don't hear me going on about it. <laughs> And, and you're still friends. And she goes like this. <laughs> There's another time. I saw this. This is my other favorite thing. It doesn't involve me, but I saw this happen. I was in the back of a soundstage on this movie, Big Business, that I did an uncredited rewrite on. And they're about to go, and she's in front of the camera, and she goes, stop, stop. There's something on my chin. And the cameraman goes, which one? <laughs> Again, laughter. She just laughed, you know. So that, is, when you get to know her, that's what she can be, which is just such a relief, isn't it? 
When you look back and think about, this was when I started to feel secure, like I can call myself a screenwriter, that I have a place. Was there a moment where you're like, I think I have staying power. I think yes. this is gonna work out. I know out. what it was, which was we opened the paper the day that my first film opened. Tom opened the paper and he goes, you're at the friggin' dome, baby. We were at the Cinerama Dome, which was this giant, giant theater, and we went on Friday night and it was packed. We got the last two seats in the back row. And I'm sitting there going, oh, I'm definitely gonna work again. You know, I'm definitely, Platoon came in number one, okay, that's all right. But we came in number two, and that was super exciting. And, and uh, I have been able to get a job ever since. That, wait, so Platoon was one and Outrageous Fortune was number two? Yeah. We are such a crazy society. That's incredible. <laughs> the, the studio was smart, counter-programming. Yeah, you know? I that's mean, amazing. Who, the people who weren't at Platoon that didn't want to see a war movie might go to a comedy. Or after Platoon, go right to Outrageous Fortune. That's incredible. So that's been a long time now where you can wake up in the morning and go, I got this. Um, yes, but I would not say that it's been a series of uninterrupted triumphs. I mean, uh, everybody has flops. Everybody experiences disses. And the big Hollywood special is betrayal. You know, you, you develop a level of trust. You let down your guard. You think this person is your friend, and then they fire you. Or... You don't never know, or they try to molest you, or you know, right. you just don't know. One of the reasons I don't live there anymore is because so many of the relationships are transactional, and and there are no transactions at all in the hippie capital of America, Berkeley, um, except maybe marijuana transactions, and and which uh, may or may not be legal. Right, and New York is such a jumble of every type of person that I don't particularly stand out. Um, uh, L.A., sometimes, you know, you don't know if someone really wants to be your friend or if they just want you to fix their terrible mm. script. Right. So I want to ask you about this, because a lot of people listening will be listening because they're fans of your work or they're aspiring writers themselves. Have you struggled with writer's block in your life? Only once. I was working on a very tricky script. A couple of weeks went by and I hadn't written a word. I'm very disciplined, really, I, you know, um, and I've... I've found ways to trick myself into remaining productive when I'm in it. But, so I call up my psychiatrist, and you know, I go about four times a year for a tune-up, and I say, all right, you deal with a lot of writers. This is the first time I've ever really have writer's block. How long does it last? And he says, three to five weeks. It was so specific. <laughs> I'm like, how do you know? He just said, that's just what it seems to be, three to five weeks. And knowing that there was a probable finite point yes. that I was going to be feeling this. I just got a whole flood of ideas the next day and I was back in it. Because I, it was a relief to find out that people don't stay like that for six months. And, and Do you think that was like a placebo answer or statistically accurate? Because it worked. I think it was statistically accurate and it worked. Yeah. But I mean, he would not have made that up. He, he treats, I mean, he was sort of the shrink to the stars. Right. I would see people leaving his crappy apartment which had cottage cheese ceilings and aluminum windows. He, was, he lived like a Spartan. And I would see like Steve Martin and John Cusack coming out when I was going in. So he made people come to that crappy apartment and sit on that hideous leather furniture. And I made fun of it all the time. And he finally did move because he had plenty of money. It was just inertia. Right. And I was just going, oh, I see your ceiling is festively <laughs> flocked for the season, you know? And he'd say, fuck you. Well, it was a great patient-doctor relationship. <laughs> 
also just four times a week, four times a year. That's kind of a great way to do therapy. That was normally, unless, you know, I was going through something like being unexpectedly pregnant. Mm. Yeah. So and you went five times that year. I probably went 20 times that yeah. year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is an extraordinary thing that you just shared because I think for people, artists especially, or anyone who feel like there's something, a barrier between the thing they want to do and it happening for whatever reason, the idea of there being a finite amount of time would change everything. Well, he may have been referring to someone who is already a professional writer right. and has dealt with deadlines. I mean, if right. you know what it is you want to say, it's easy to write. Yeah. The writing is the easier part. It's figuring out the content, story, characters, whatever it is that you want to do. That's the hard part. That's you know what they call breaking the story, and right. it's tough. But boy, sometimes if you do a good job with that, it almost writes itself. That's incredible. And also, I guess I want to ask, because you've had, I mean, you're, you're, the chapters in your life, the amount you have written is staggering. And the idea that the same person wrote Limitless and Outrageous Fortune just blows my mind. That in that beautiful head of yours, all of these different stories, types of writing, genres, have all percolated and come out on screen in a way that has given all of us such an incredible pleasure. Um, when you're writing jokes, when you're writing comedy versus, versus drama, do you um, bounce your jokes off of Tom, or do you, how do you work on never, jokes? No, uh-uh. I mean, they just come organically out of what you're writing. You never try to write a joke and then stick it in somewhere. It doesn't work that way. It has to be within the flow of what you're doing. And if you are basically an irreverent person, which uh, I am, you're gonna, I'm have to, you're gonna have to cut out that F-bomb. Um, then, then the absurdity of the situation, which hopefully it is absurd if it's a comedy, will just, uh, things will just bubble to your lips and you type them, yeah. you know? But, but a joke that you try to find a place to stick. Uh, I was telling Nikki last night my favorite joke that got cut out of Hairspray and I could never put it anywhere. It's not like Joan Rivers where she put jokes in files and since she would just pull one out randomly when that documentary about her and read it and it was a funny joke. Yeah. Right, because stand-up you can just segue from one thing to the next and stick something anywhere. But a film is linear and, and it has to be on the spine of what you're trying to do as a storyteller. Character. It uh -huh. comes out of character and somebody and else gave me a good piece of advice before I even started, which is you ought to be able to put a piece of tape over the names of the characters and tell who's talking. That was a really good piece of advice. Yeah. So that all your characters don't sound like you. Well, that's, that makes perfect sense. And I imagine the difference, obviously, when you, you have done both original content and then adaptations of things. And so a lot of the work which is are done easier. for you. Right. Yeah, no adaptations are easier. You have something to start with, and presumably you took the job because you liked the book. Um, the Times Crown Affair was difficult because people had fond memories of the original film, and the original film also had Steve McQueen in it, who is one of the sexiest men, right. you know, and completely different type than Pierce, who's sort of the more good-looking, dashing, you know, matinee idol type. And I just looked at the whole movie, which didn't hold up all that well, despite the fact that Steve McQueen, I still would like to have him. Um, He's also here today. Thank you, Steve McQueen, for being here. Thank you. That's who was in that box. <laughs> in the Tribune Award, <laughs> it's not your father's ashes. It was Steve McQueen's ashes, exactly. Uh, obscene things I'm, that I'm not going to say. Um, but, but so the Pierce Brosnan of it all. It was his idea. It was Pierce's idea. He had a deal at UA. He was looking through their catalog, their titles, 
and this popped up and he thought, you know, that could be remade. It might even be able to be improved. Um, and because I had written a script that was a drama that hadn't been made yet, I got that job. And I didn't know it at the time, but working with John McTiernan, who's a man's man, rough director, John Ford type of guy, lives on a ranch, you know, drives a pickup truck, doesn't put up with anybody's nonsense, and greets you for the first time with a scowl. Like, prove it to me. Um, that turned out to be really good for me, you know? He, he just kicked my ass. So he worked on the script with you. He didn't write, but he, um, he challenged me continually to be honest, what he was trying to do was get me to write more like a man in certain parts of it. Hmm. And that was not a bad thing. What does that mean? What does that sentence it means, mean? It means working on action sequences. Okay. It means um, not shying away from dark, edgy uh, tone when it's appropriate. Okay. And after that, I couldn't have written Limitless if I hadn't had that experience with McTiernan. And then I realized, what do you know? Um, I'm not always writing the kind of scripts I would buy a ticket to. I like movies like Thomas Crown Affair. Right. I like movies like Limitless. Why can't I write a thriller? But what I will say about Changing Your Lane is no one's gonna give you the shot. You have to take it. You have to write a script in a different genre than what you're known for and show it to people so they can see that you can do it. They're probably not gonna just give you the job. If you've written Disney G-rated movies and you now wanna write the next Fast and Furious, they're not gonna do it unless you have a writing sample in right. that genre. Right. I don't want to be selfish and be the only one to ask you questions today. So I'm going to, if it's okay with you, can I open it up to the audience for some questions? I can't imagine why it would okay. be bad. Okay. So no bad ones. So let's take a few um, and just raise your hand. I will repeat the question since you don't have a mic and then the question will be aired when we air the podcast. So does anyone have a question for Ms. Leslie Dixon? Do you write a script in order was the question. I always start at the beginning and go to the end. The beginning informs the end. You have to kind of know where it's going, but I have a funny little trick I play on myself. For the, from the midpoint of my career on, I've been doing this. I rewrite the first 30 pages a bunch of times until it's in such good shape you could turn, in it, turn it in, okay? And then I slop it through to the end. But if, I find if the first phase of the rocket is really solid, that's lifting off your story, it's easier and more downhill to do the next two phases. So films do tend, they don't always, but they do tend to go into a three-act structure, kind of. So if the first act is just aces, you're so encouraged and you're so uh, buoyed by the fact that you knock the first act out of the park that it, it bolsters your confidence. What is your first shot? Is it something that makes you want to turn the page to the next page? Or ask, ask a question that might be answered? Because there is only one rule, which is do you want to turn the page to the next page? And it's surprisingly tough to achieve that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of professional writers who make a lot of money who frankly suck at being able to do that. And reading scripts is generally torture. Torture for executives, torture for me. Um, most people just don't know how to get a story going. And if you can master that trick, um, like a campfire storyteller that just has everybody spellbound, really the story is the most important thing. And the next most important thing is, I'm an A-list actor or actor, actress, do I want to play this part? That's another thing. Do I get to show off? You know, am I expanding my range? So do you think about that when you're writing? Will an A-list writer want to do this part? You mean actress? Sorry, yes. Will an A-list actress or actor want to play this part? Now I do. Um, now I do. Uh, 
occasionally there are actor-proof scripts where the concept is so amazingly strong, mm -hmm. the Blair Witches of the world, you know? Right, right. Uh, that doesn't matter. Horror movies, it doesn't tend to matter who's in them, you know? If it's a good, creepy concept, kids show up. But but in general, the thing that gets films greenlit is, is an A-list director or A-list actor wanting to do it. Right. And, and so you have to think, if I were a director, would I want to direct this? How do I get to show off visually? Um, and the actor part, for sure, especially actresses who are so ill-served mm -hmm. by our business and have such a short shelf life. I also am protective of actresses on sets. Like, I'm always going up to the DP and going, that's too low of an angle for her. Right, make her look her best. Yeah, no, yeah. as Bette would say, low angles, they create chins. The question from one of our audience members was, now that you have written so many screenplays and seen them produced and been in the room while the edit has happened, uh, does that affect how you write the script to begin with? Well, I know, for example, not to write a shot that would be physically impossible to mount. You know, I know what is possible and what isn't, and I know what's possible with special effects. But more importantly, I've learned from watching the edited final product, product what is never gonna end up in the movie, right? I've learned that when there's a scene where people either talk about what they just did or what they're about to do, it's cut out, right? Because you just go from what she did to what she does next. You don't talk in between. So I began to start almost cutting the script. In, as John Ford used to cut the movie in the camera, I kind of cut the script in my brain like, I knew it's gonna get sliced off there, so I might as well just end there. I try to make it, um, as close to what could be a, a, a final film as opposed to an amorphous thing that some editor is going to have to shape. And I've had some luck with that. You know, I've had some things shot really almost exactly as they were written. Um, and I don't know that many people that can say that, and that I cannot attribute to skill. I mean, it was just the movie gods were looking out for me, maybe with the fact that they weren't huge budgeted movies, that they don't throw so many writers at them and panic. Um, sometimes it's because you get along with the director once I had in my contract that they couldn't fire me, I made them suffer. <laughs> this was relativity. They were bad people. They deserved it. We're coming to an end, and I just want to share with the audience something you told me, and many of you may know that, that Leslie wrote a piece, and it was in The New Yorker magazine. Um, what was that about? And, and tell us about things you're thinking about writing in the future, speaking of changing lanes genres completely. Well, you guys all know who Rodgers and Hammerstein are, right? Well, before Rodgers met Hammerstein, he was, his, his lyricist was Lawrence Hart, who's one of my favorite lyricists, and my parents had me all very interested in standards and rhymes and things like that from the time I was little, and I discovered after many years of living in Beverly Hills that Lawrence Hart had lived in my house and rented it and lived there while he was, in the early 30s, while he was writing Isn't It Romantic? Oh my God. You know that song? Isn't it romantic? The da, best. Da, 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 da. Anyway, so. I got really excited, did some research, saw pictures of my backyard from that period. Apparently, Marie Chevalier was over at the house singing. I mean, all these things that I would have never known if some woman hadn't told me she knew this. And it turned out to be true. I called the academy. They have a library there. They started finding pictures. Um, I got really excited about it. And this guy I was telling about this said, well, why don't you write that piece for The New Yorker? And I said, I don't know anybody at The New Yorker. I don't have a literary agent. That's a whole different world. He goes, I work for Condé Nast, duh. And I was on the phone with somebody. And he said, well, I can't promise you anything, but you know, there's a new biography of Hart coming out. And he had drunk himself to death at 47. It was very sad. Mm -hmm. um, and 
I got really lucky. They liked it and they printed it. And it showed, I, I had little examples in it of nasty rhymes I used to write because I wanted to be a lyricist. And um, they paid me $250. Big whoop, thanks so much. So I think I'll stick with screenwriting for the moment. Uh, but, it, but it was an honor and I'm sorry my dad didn't live to see that because we had a subscription to the New Yorker when I was a kid and I didn't understand anything in it, especially the cartoons, except Pauline Kael. I always understood her, never dreaming she would negatively review my first film someday. <laughs> and never dreaming that my beloved high school English teacher, which brings this all back in a circle to being the little girl who got A's, was Pauline Kael's sister. Wow. I found that out when this woman was in her 80s. I had no idea. So if you were to um, write a memoir, and you will write a memoir, and we will not hold you to this, what would you call it? Dish served cold. Well, I have thought about it, <laughs> as you can tell. I think but I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I, I'm still having adventures. I mean, I was, I was in London on a location scout a few weeks ago, and I got into a basketball argument with Spike Lee. You know, if I stay inside and write a novel for a year, that wouldn't have happened. So I'm still, I'm still having an awful lot of fun, you know, just with the adventure of it all. The actual writing is starting to hurt my lower back. Oh. I thought we were going to say hurt my feelings. The <laughs> Not your feelings, your back. Why do I feel like you might have won that argument with Spike Lee? It's just oh, a Oh, I hunch. did because, well, I don't think KD is really going to go to the Knicks. I really don't, especially now. And I, I said, yeah, okay, and play with who? And lose? He's going to go to the Knicks and lose? You know, you do need some role players on your team. You can't just have the one guy. And, oh, but he was having fun. I mean, it yeah. was a fun argument, you know, yeah. just back and forth, back and forth. He just couldn't believe this white chick was, you know, yelling at him about basketball. It was, it was fun. He was, he was great, actually. So are you working together, or did he, he no, just happened to party. be in London? I got okay. to go to the Banffa party, you know, the British kind of Academy sure. Awards. I was a fill-in for somebody whose date couldn't go, and I get to go there and, like, it's very different from a Hollywood party. It was, it was all Jeremy Irons. I sat between Terry Gilliam and Ron Howard at the dinner. I already knew Ron from America, but Terry Gilliam? That's a great I night. I mean, and he was great. Yeah. And Stephen Frears and all these guys. And I knew where the bar with the real liquor was, so I was going and getting them gin. Um, but I would never meet those guys in America. You right. know, it was, it was very special for me. Um, you know, TV stars, people like that, you see them in restaurants and whatever in, in L.A., but that was just yeah. a very... Timothy Artists Chalamet like was there. Yeah. I was starstruck. I, I still get starstruck. But I will leave you with one thing. Almost anybody over 65 wants to be recognized. So it's okay to talk to people if they're older stars because they're worried that their work might be forgotten. And I finally figured this out, so I've accosted Mel Brooks and elevators <laughs> and, you know, uh, and, and it's okay. And I, I even talked to Elizabeth Taylor once and she liked it. So that was, that, that it's, so now I know, you know, the only one I would say don't do it is Tommy Lee Jones, maybe. He's kind of scary, but, but everybody else, I think, will be happy that you remember their work. And I want to let them know what they mean to me, as long as I'm not um, crass about it. Well, this is going to sound so corny, but I want you to know what your work means to me. And I think I speak for all of us here, the amount of entertainment on every level that you have provided and escapism and thoughtfulness uh, is really meaningful. So thank you well, so much. Well, let's not forget frivolity. And frivolity. Thank you all for coming. So thank you, Leslie Dixon. Thank you so much.
If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast. And on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. Do you believe in stories? I know I do. Do you feel like there is more to your story? Personally, I feel like there's more to every story. And I got some good news. There's this great company called The Pocket Media Group, and they can help you find the more in your story and tell it so it connects to the people you most want to reach. They specialize in video, photography, writing, design, branding, and strategy, all the pieces you need to start something new or polish up something old. And they understand that story, whether it's a photograph, a video, or words on a page, powerfully connects people and ideas. So whether you're a not-for-profit, a company, or just good old you with an idea, whatever your story, mission, or message, reach out to the people at The Pocket Media Group at www.thepocketmediagroup.com and let them help you start telling your story. Because look, we know there is definitely more to your story.